Well, good morning. Again, One Ancient Hope. I'm glad to be back and to get to spend a little more time with you all this morning. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to just say a few things about myself, just to ha- so you have some context for who's going to be with you for these next few months. Um, I am from the Chicagoland area, born and raised just outside of Joliet, Illinois, which is most famous for having a prison. Um, I was not raised in a Christian home. I was raised more so in a nominally Catholic home. We went um, every now and then to Mass, not even every holiday. I come from a, a divorced family. My parents got divorced when I was in third grade. Um, and I met Jesus in high school. I, I was a skateboarder, and some friends invited me to a youth group where they had skateboarding ramps inside, and this was in the Chicago winter, so you would do anything to get inside to be able to skateboard. And it took me about a year of attending that youth group before something about the gospel finally clicked in my heart. I went to college in Chicago. I went to a school called Moody Bible Institute, where I studied historical theology, stayed in Chicago and worked at a church for a little bit, met my wife, uh, Sarah, we got married. We've been married almost 11 years now. Um, from Chicago, moved to the Los Angeles area to attend seminary. I went to a school called Fuller Theological Seminary out there. Um, also worked at a church out there. And then from there, we moved to New York City to work at a church plant where my wife and I were for the last uh, five years until most recently we moved back to Southern California, this time for my wife to get to go to grad school. And then this last spring, we all know what happened with COVID and our world was turned upside down and we thought it best to move back to the Midwest to be near um, our families. My family is still all in the Chicagoland area My wife's family, her mom actually lives in Cedar Rapids, so that's a bit of our connection to Iowa. Her parents are both originally from Dubuque, and so we have, you know, we have some love and some connection to Iowa. My parents, when they first got married, before I was born, they lived in Council Bluffs, so all the way on the other side of Iowa, but still, Iowa nonetheless, and my dad spent a a summer um, session studying psychology at the University of Iowa um, for, for his graduate degree. So some connections, uh, we're not just randomly here. We feel a love for this place, even though we just got here Friday. Um, a little bit more about me is that I chose this particular passage today because there is this pharisaical bent in my own heart. If I'm honest with you all, um, The Pharisees, as many of you might know, were a Jewish religious sect around the time of Jesus. They held this deep love of the Hebrew scriptures and the Jewish people. And honestly, they had a robust reverence for God and God's holiness. You see, they wanted to make sure that the Jewish people remained holy, meaning set apart and separate from the cultural Hellenization of the time. And this love of scripture, God, and God's people, it led them to learn the scriptural laws very well. 
And by placing such a high view on the laws, they started to create laws around the laws. I mean, they're the kind of people who would have went to Bible college and seminary. And what they had was a good desire. And this is where I can relate to this pharisaical impulse. It was to teach the scriptures and keep their people holy. But this good desire ended up causing them to create this religion that's actually impossible to follow. It was a religion that in reality drained people from the communion with God that they were actually supposed to have. It was a religion of should and a religion of rules. Well, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, which is where our New Testament lesson comes from, Jesus says this in chapter 23. He scathes scathes the Pharisees. He says, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And I hope you see the contrast between that and Jesus's words today. So over the next few months, as we journey together, my prayer is that I would never seek to lay any heavy burdens upon you. That the pharisaical bent in my heart would be kept in check by Jesus, and I would never tell you a bunch of shoulds or musts. No, my hope is that rather I would encourage you on the path of life. I mean, listen again to this invitation that Jeremiah gives us from the Old Testament lesson. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. I mean, Jesus sounds an awful lot like Jeremiah in our New Testament lesson particularly in those last couple verses, which is really where I'm going to be focusing on today. So let me read them again to you. We even sang them this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. So let me ask you this morning, how do you hear these words? I mean, maybe they're fresh to you. Maybe uh, you're watching this online right now or a few days later because a friend asked you to, and you've never heard these before. They're fresh to you. And when you hear them, they almost deliver what they proclaim, right? When Jesus speaks of rest, you can feel it. And maybe it seems a little too good to be true. Well, here's the thing. Let them be true to you today. There's no day like today to follow Jesus. On the other hand, maybe you've heard these words plenty of times. Maybe you have them cross-stitched on uh, your wall or your Nana does, and they're just kind of uh, numb to you. You've heard them. You've seen them so many times. The repetition, the familiarity, they're sort of powerless at this point. Well, for you, what I would say is, would you let these words be infused and reinvigorated by the life-giving spirit of God this morning? 
Because the Spirit can and does do that. Or perhaps you've heard these words many times, and uh, rather than you feeling any rest or even any disinterest, you're actually frustrated by them. Why? Because you're sick of hearing this promise of rest, this promise of an easy yoke. Because faith has never felt easy to you. In fact, maybe once you became a Christian or started taking your faith more seriously, life only got more complex, more hard, filled with more disappointments. Well, don't worry if that's you. We'll get to you later. I will address this, I promise. Let's go to Jesus' words again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, historically, Jesus is speaking to a people of unrest. The philosophy, right, the, the, the Hellenization that was happening in Judea in this time, it wasn't really working. I mean, Socrates couldn't settle the uneasy waters of the soul. Politics certainly weren't working. The Jewish people were living as if they were still exiles because of Roman occupation and political unrest. Religion wasn't working. Judaism was divided up into multiple religious sects who all deeply disagreed with one another about what it meant to follow God. I mean, Israel at this time had every right to be fatigued and wearied as a people. So Jesus speaks to them. And I think today these verses speak to our deep soul weariness as well. I think we all experience it. I mean, right now in this particular cultural moment, there's plenty of reasons to be weary, to feel heavy laden. In our modern world, with the influence of the internet and the smartphone, it's sort of given the vast majority of us this low-grade fatigue and anxiety that rarely, if ever, goes away. On top of that, we're now, I think, about seven months into coronatide, as some are calling it, or this COVID life. And while there's plenty of speculation, there's not really an end in sight. I mean, the loss of life from this, both literally and metaphorically, is exhausting. I feel the fatigue of it. And then on top of that, right, we're in this unprecedented election season, and I don't know how anyone could have watched this past debate and not felt exhausted. And then you, as a church, One Ancient Hope, you're in the season of transition as well. And transition is always tiring. It always requires more of you. So sometimes we can point to a significant factor that's causing us to be weary or heaven-laden, but oftentimes we actually can't. You know, Our weariness results from a cumulative, multi-layered intersection of life's complexities. It all adds up. And this is why this famous little quote from St. Augustine, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
So the first thing we have to note about this text is that it's an invitation. It's an invitation by Jesus. And all invitations demand a response. Either you respond yes or no. Will you come when he says come to me or won't you? It's an invitation with a compelling offer. Rest. This last weekend, my brother and I um, were in California getting all of my stuff, my wife, my family's stuff, out of storage and putting it on a truck to head out to Iowa. And so obviously we were quite exhausted from moving. His flight on the day we were leaving was an hour and a half earlier than mine. Rather than drive him to the airport that morning, which I could have done, it was like three miles away, I paid $15 for him to take an Uber so I could sleep an hour and a half longer. Rest was compelling. Rest was worth the money. And I think anyone with kids at home right now during COVID might be willing to shell out some big bucks for rest as well. Jesus offers rest. It's a compelling invitation. The thing is, though, who is he that he can make this offer? And can he deliver? Well, this is why I wanted some of the preceding verses read. Jesus says in verse 27, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, this is why Jesus can offer rest. He's in Trinitarian relationship with God the Father, with the God who Genesis says created everything, called it very good, and then rested. The one who created, redeems, and sustains everything is able to rest. And so Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Just like we have to say yes to the invitation of rest, we have to intentionally opt in to his yoke for us. He says, take my yoke. Jesus will not coerce us into fellowship with him. He will not oppressively dominate us into rest as if that is even possible. I mean, Think about being forced to rest. You might think, oh, someone who lost their job, they're now forced to rest. I mean, if you ask anyone who lost their job, are they able to rest? No, they have more time, but their mind is now under so much more duress that they often can't rest. I mean, some people think that the coronavirus has been this way where now we're all forced to slow down and rest. I don't know about that. I don't know if people feel more rested. I know some do. I think it's certainly an invitation to rest, but it's not a demand to rest. We have to choose to take the yoke Jesus offers. This is a way that we can intentionally consent to discipleship. Let's talk about yokes for a moment. As I said, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up on a farm. I had no idea what a yoke was besides, you know, the yellow part of an egg. Uh, turns out a yoke is a farming implement. It joins two animals, usually oxen, 
together sort of by the neck. It's this wooden piece divides them by the connects them by the neck uh, so that animals can share the workload evenly and therefore become more productive. Okay, so that's what a yoke is. You, pr- you probably knew that already. You're not that shocked. You should be, though. You should be like, what? Jesus offers rest, and then he offers work equipment? Why? Why use this imagery of work when talking about rest? Why the contrast? Well, let me read a quote from the biblical scholar, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner. He says, quote, A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. A fresh way to bear the responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Now, I am, I'm only 33, okay? But each year as I age, life does not get easier. The burdens don't seem to get lighter. They seem more and more complex, I know that there's at least two grad students in the room, and you might be thinking, I cannot wait until I'm done with my classes so I can finally take a breather. It'll be easier. I hate to say it. It won't. So it's good news that Jesus offers us equipment and not a way to escape because it's never going to feel like you can escape. So oftentimes, as I learned about the yokes, ancient farmers would yoke together an older oxen with a younger one. And this was in order to train it, in order to train the oxen in how to be an ox, I suppose. Uh, So this makes sense why Jesus would say, take my yoke and learn from me. He's offering us a way of training in his life, a way of training in the ways of Jesus, of discipleship and formation. On top of this, the yoke was a common rabbinic idiom in the time of Jesus in the ancient Near East. And what rabbis referred to when talking about their yoke was their particular way of interpreting the Torah and the teachings they offered. You see, a rabbi's yoke is their particular way of life. It's how they embodied following God. To learn a rabbi's yoke, you wouldn't just listen to their teachings in the synagogue. You wouldn't just get their newest book uh, from Prairie Lights. No, you would live in their home so as to witness and learn from their entire life. You'd watch how they made breakfast. You'd watch how they brushed their teeth at night. You'd watch how they dealed with the hecklers who hated their teachings. You'd watch how they particularly studied and applied the Torah. In essence, you'd become their apprentice. So Jesus' yoke is more than his teachings. It's the way that he enfleshes or incarnates the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's the way he carries himself. It's his way of being in the world. Here's what I want 
us to hear is that Jesus offers us the good, true, and beautiful way of being human. Now to that third group that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon, those who've heard this preached plenty of times and still feel weary and heavy laden, and maybe more so the longer you've been a Christian. Uh, I've been there as well. Because the longer I've followed Christ, the more broken I've realized I am. And also the more clearly I'm able to see the brokenness of the world, the deep healing that is needed. And I feel helpless. And I feel like it seems impossible sometimes to actually follow the teachings of Jesus. I mean, can I really sell all I have and give it to the poor? Can I really love my wife the way that Christ loved the church? Here's some truth about this. A yoke only works well if the animals walk in step with one another. So there's this piece of wood connecting their necks together. But if one of them is moving faster, they're the one stuck carrying most of the weight. They're the one stuck doing all the work. And the yoke is jabbing them uncomfortably in the neck. Look, a yoke is a deeply intimate and relational metaphor. And when Jesus says to take his yoke, he's saying we have to take his pace, his pattern, his rhythm of life. Which almost always means we have to slow down. If you read through the Gospels, you'll be confronted with the way that Jesus was almost never in a hurry. I mean, even during his quote-unquote busy ministry seasons, he still goes away and escapes to be alone with the Father. He didn't even start his ministry until he was 30. You know how much more ministry he could have done if he would have started in his 20s? He didn't even kick it into high gear when a little girl was dying or when his good friend Lazarus was dying. He waits a couple days and they end up dead. Of course, he's able to do something else, which I won't give it away. Just read Luke 8 or John 11 and find out what happens for yourself. But Jesus lived within human limits and not just begrudgingly. He honored them. He gave dignity and divinity to what makes us human. The late Dallas Willard, who was a philosophy professor at USC, who's also a Christian spiritual writer, he lets us in on what he calls the secret of the easy yoke. Dallas, he compares uh, discipleship to baseball. He says that a Christian who expects to act, quote, on the spot in a Christ-like manner, without proper training, is like a baseball player who goes on the field without practice or exercise and expects to hit a home run. Running the bases is never going to feel easy if you don't practice doing sprints for a few months. I mean, it's like music as well. You can think about trying to play Mozart or Beethoven or the Beatles or whatever you fancy. It's never going to feel natural and easy if you haven't learned your scales or proper fingering. I mean, 
what Brandon was playing, it, it's, it sounded easy. It was real smooth on the guitar today. But if anyone who has never practiced goes up there, it's not going to sound easy on your ears. This is obvious in sports and music and things like that, right? But for some reason, we think we can avoid exercise and discipline in the Christian life. And that just magically will become an act like Christ. As if upon conversion, this switch flips and our character is all of a sudden perfected here on earth. Right? We know we've been justified. So we think, well, we can sort of save sanctification for when we're dead. Here, Willard, in this somewhat longer quote, but he explains this secret of the easy yoke. He says, quote, The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Following in his steps cannot be equated with behaving as he did when he was on the spot. To live as Christ lives is to live as he did all his life. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, turning the other cheek, going the second mile, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives like everyone around us does. This, he says, is like the aspiring young baseball players mentioned earlier. It's a strategy bound to fail and to make the way of Christ difficult and left untried. In truth, it is not the way of Christ any more than striving to act in a certain manner in the heat of a game is the way of a champion athlete. Instead of an easy yoke, all we'll experience is frustration. And to put it even more simply, the pastor John Mark Comer says, If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you've been a Christian for a while and you're experiencing the yoke that is the way of Jesus as heavy and impossible, what I want to encourage you to is to practice some spiritual disciplines. I mean, what these disciplines will do is they'll help you train off the spot so that when you're on the spot or in the moment, you can actually love your neighbor well. So I'd ask you, do you have a practice of silence or solitude in your life? Do you have a practice of prayer, of Sabbath, of time in the scriptures? These are unexciting. These are like the, the disciplines that a baseball player has to do during practice. They're not exciting like hitting a home run uh, or running the bases or being on, on the field. <clears throat> but these ordinary, often boring disciplines will help you develop into the kind of person who naturally responds in situations like Jesus. The kind of person where turning the other cheek almost seems easy. Jesus anticipates us doubting this promise of rest, which is why he reiterates it in the next verse, further situating it in his very character. He says, for I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you ever wonder, what is the heart of God like? When you think about that, is the first word that comes to mind gentle? Is it humble? Lowly? You see, there's rest with a God like that. This is the kind of God who can say in the next verse, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Greek word for easy there is krestos, which is also uh, translated or means well-fitting. And uh, in ancient Palestine, these ox yokes, they were made of wood, mostly. The yoke would be carefully adjusted so that it would fit well, not jab or cut into the neck of the animal. It was tailor-made for the ox. Who better to carve our yoke than the carpenter from Nazareth? Who better to show us how to be human than the God who dreamt up humanity in the first place? Jesus is one with God, the creator, giving him unique ability to invite us into a yoke, into a way of life that fits well. When we are living in sync with the creator's design, following the blueprints of the divine architect, we are living in what Eugene Peterson calls the unforced rhythms of grace. <clears throat> if you're a musician who's played to a metronome, you know what it's like when the tempo is too fast or too slow. Honestly, the whole experience is unenjoyable. It just feels unnatural. But when you're in the groove, living in that unforced rhythm of grace, there is an ease, a fittingness to everything. It doesn't mean there isn't pain or suffering or work to be done. On the contrary. But all of it has its place and purpose in God. That is the easy yoke. Jesus offers us the good, true, and beautiful way of being human. Now, the first time I heard this concept of a yoke, it actually wasn't in this verse. It was when I was in high school, in youth group, and it was from a youth pastor encouraging us not to be unequally yoked uh, in dating and relationships like this. It's from 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The idea is that we shouldn't date non-Christians because that would be unequally yoked. Fair. Now, I mentioned earlier how farmers would train the younger oxen by pairing them with an older, more mature oxen. This is how they'd teach them. They realized this would create an unequal yoke. The younger oxen would be smaller, the older one a little taller, so the majority of the weight would be on the older oxen. I mean, imagine me, I'm, I'm a quite a tall person, yoked to a, a three-year-old, let's say. So the piece of wood is from my neck all the way down to theirs. We're carrying some weight. We're walking through town. The three-year-old is going to love it. They're going to be like, I could do this all day. I'm going to be exhausted. All of the weight is going to be on me. 
The thing is, we are unequally yoked to Jesus. This is the gospel. He bears the burden. I mean, this is why we can rest even in our labor for the kingdom. Jesus is shouldering the weight. He offers us the good, true, and beautiful way of being human and makes it possible for us to participate by bearing the sheer weight of it on the cross. Even in his death, he isn't crushed, but rises to new life. Amen.